Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. This is Ingrid Cochran. Uh, thank you for joining History, Culture, Trauma. I'm here today with my co-host, Matthew Portell. Um, he is the new director of communities with Faces Connection. And we have a fabulous guest today. We are talking with journalist, speaker, and author Donna Jackson Nakazawa. So um, this episode should be extremely interesting as we kind of continue our conversation around um, our beliefs and values and how we view children and how the conditions in our country have um, really created environments where our children are more susceptible to abuse and neglect. Uh, and this is all in recognition of April, um, which is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. So um, thank you for joining us. And um, Matthew, how are you doing this evening? I am doing absolutely great. And I cannot wait um, to dig into to our conversation with, with Donna. She is an award-winning science journalist. She's, as you mentioned, she has seven books. She's an internationally recognized speaker whose work explores the intersection of neuroscience, uh, immunology, and human emotion. I, if people don't know, but she has a brand new book coming up this fall that I think many of us are very excited about. And the title of it is Girls on the Brink, Helping Our Daughters Thrive in an Era of Increased Anxiety, Depression, and Social Media, um, which I think that we'll dig into that a little bit. And that comes out in September. But she's also created a, uh, a narrative to healing writing program mm -hmm. called Your Healing Narrative, which uses the process of neuro and re-narrating to help participants recognize and override their brains old thought patterns and internalized stories and create new robust inner healing narratives that calm the body, brain, and nervous system. So without any other further ado, Donna, how are you? Welcome to the show. And we cannot wait to, to learn more about you and the work. Such a pleasure to be here, Ingrid and Matthew. Thank you for having me. And um, I'm looking forward to digging in and just want to say a quick hi to your audience. Thanks for joining us. And I'm super psyched to be here with the two of you. As you guys know, I'm a big fan of Paces Connection and have done a lot of work um, with your organization over the years. So um, this is great. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you. And especially for this episode, when we're talking about um, you know, just to give some background this whole month, we've really been talking about Bronfenbrenner's social ecological model. And in this episode, we want to talk about kind of our beliefs and values that we have um, concerning children in our, in our society. And I think this is a perfect fit for your work um, because I think what, what you do is help us to kind of challenge how we view children and kind of their inner world. And so I think it's a perfect fit. Um, and so when we're thinking about kind of discussions we've had in the past, um, we've kind of covered all of the different layers so far, except for um, kind of the what, what, what Bronfenbrenner would call the, the macro system and the chrono system. So macro system being our beliefs and values and then the chrono system being 
really generational issues. And that's really at the root of a lot of our misunderstandings and myths about childhood and children in general, um, is that generational gap uh, that we um, often view children within the own within our the context of our childhood, which is uh, extremely different because time marches on, and um, as history shows us, we have different concerns and different uh, things that we are uh, very much connected to, depending on the time period that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if we look back at Um, this country's history around children, we really have to understand that our beliefs and values are rooted in the experiences of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And the understanding that we have about what we hold as our beliefs and values are really the lessons that they taught us, um, either uh, explicitly or implicitly. Um, We learn our beliefs and values from their experiences and um, our descendants will learn their beliefs and values from our experiences. And uh, as I was kind of doing some research for this uh, episode, I came across um, some very interesting things. So uh, kind of looking at the timeline, um, certain trends stood out. First, we've always been kind of a group that believes that children are expendable. Um, that if they're not able to somehow be exploited for either their labor or other things, then they, you know, we don't see them as contributing to society. And this is kind of deeply rooted in um, the um, kind of how children were viewed in Europe, um, especially poor children. Um, they were legally indentured if they came from poor families or were caught doing any type of crime, especially stealing, um, which of course they were doing to to eat. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, So this belief that if you um, clothe children, provide shelter for them, then that's kind of all you need to do. And then, of course, the belief that um, you can exploit children, especially poor children, for their labor or how other ways they can contribute to society. Um, We brought that over with us in our understanding of children um, to America. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... But by the time we get those in place and say, hey, maybe four hours a day or, um, you know, and we definitely came to this a little later than we did for livestock. Uh, And all that to say that even during this time, um, slavery was not ended until 1865. Uh, And so these types of um, early understandings of children and their their lives and how they should be treated did not extend to all children. And so I think that when we think about these uh, conditions that that foster abuse and neglect, uh, it is deeply rooted in our society. Uh, We often see children as, again, to be seen but not heard. Um, Children are a source of exploitation. And even when we think about um, gender issues, um, we have issue of child marriage. um, So the exploitation of girls around sexual exploitation along with domestic labor. Um, and then even further, um, kind of our, uh, what the history shows us about the experience of um, children during slavery, they started working um, and going into their roles, domestic and in the fields, about age five. And so um, this is where our beliefs and values about children and their role in society or their liability has kind of been rooted in in kind of the formation even before we started our society. Um, And so I think 
I really want to know what you think from your work, what stands out to you as the trends about how we view children in our society? Well, first of all, I thought that was such a wonderful encapsulation. And um, I guess, you know, the things that came to mind as you were speaking are that America loves to say we love our children, right? Like we just love to say, you know, America loves its children. But historically, as you just pointed out, nothing could be further from the truth. And um, as Science has marched on. One thing I think a lot about, because as Matthew said, I come through the lens as a as a trained journalist and um, and a science journalist at that. And as one thing, this intersection of oh, we love our children, and yet you see this history, um, both in terms of true history, everything you just talked about, but also the lived experience of children growing up in families. Yes, as if clothing and a roof over your head is enough without attention to um, emotions and, and with all kinds of emotional neglect going on. So as we've begun to see the science over time, and the ACE research has come about and we've started to ask questions about types of adversity like emotional neglect, like not feeling that anyone in your family had your back or like being bullied by siblings and parents don't do anything about it. All of these different types of adversity kids face in the home that adults don't pay attention to because and we'll talk about this later i'm sure of their own generational trauma now that we have really good evidence through neuroscience and immunology that this kind of emotional neglect and trauma is changing kids brains and immune systems and bodies and literally flipping that cascade of stress hormones is flipping on genes that set in motion mental health and physical health disorders across the lifespan. Now that we have that, we're getting a lot more airtime and attention for childhood trauma, for childhood neglect. But one thing I think about a lot is like, why did we need to have this? to pay attention to children. Like, yes, I report on the science and I, I spend my days in labs, you know, like a fly on the wall, listening and watching researchers or sitting with public health sages and, you know, learning astonishing things. And I love what I do, but there are many times where I sit back and I go, isn't it just enough to know that kids are suffering, right? Like, is, isn't it enough just to know that, um, BIPOC children are suffering, LGBTQ kids are suffering, um, kids who are abused by their parents are suffering, kids who grow up in a family where they're just being chronically humiliated are suffering. Isn't it enough? Do we have to have the science to reveal the truth, to want to do anything about it? And I think that plays into everything that you talked about in how we're build upon this lie that America loves its children. When even in my generation growing up, it was very much kids are seen and not heard. And I'm definitely older than you two, but, um, but, and, and that came from my parents and that idea that, you know, no one wants to hear what a child has to say. And now we're flipping that and we're coming into a time generationally where 
we are asking parents to see kids as these very intricate um, emotional beings who are dancing their brains and their immune systems and their nervous systems, just dancing with the environment 24 seven, right? Every cue we send them about their worth and their mattering and whether they're seen and heard dances with their biology and it's coming out across their lifespan and neural structure and their brain and the function of their immune system. So the science is really, really powerful, but we're now in this place, I think, where we've taken this information and we just can't really land in the messy middle of it, where we, we take what we know in a, in a really intelligent and targeted way and translate science to impact for kids in individual families and across society without going so far that we come into that overhovering parenting and that helicopter parenting. We just haven't really succeeded as a country in landing in that messy middle built on the history that we have and the science that we're sitting with now. Well, and I think in the last couple episodes, you know, we've spoken uh, about systems and we've spoken about families and we've we've kind of went from uh, that that small perspective all the way up to these beliefs. And, and I hear what you say, and I think we're just now getting to the point where we're humanizing kids, right? And I even go back and, and the listeners know, and I, I told you that I every context I think through education, right? Because that's what I spent the majority of my career. And I think how we know all of these things yet the structures and the systems of a school are still set back to that time of children are seen or not heard they don't have a voice um, the way consequences and punishment are used the way that a dysregulated system or child is looked at is looked at as a problem like I think you're right. We're at that, just at that beginning point of looking at the values of what we see our kids. So what do you see? How do you see this work moving forward? And how do you see these transformations of our beliefs contributing to the changing of our system? Well, so when we, whether we're, I always think as journalists too, with that, old model we learn in journalism school, like at the very center, we have that individual child who we we are definitely wanting to humanize and, and make sure that they feel seen and known and safe in, in whatever environment in which they're growing up and coming of age. And around that, we have the immediate caregivers, right? And then we have the, the immediate and extended family. And then we have the, the closest systems, the school, the community, the streets you walk down, your aunts and uncles and neighbors and community centers. And then we bridge out to, you know, these bigger systems, you know, your, your, your state and your, your government and these bigger structural systems and then into the whole you know global intersection so if we really go down into that center that original being that child really what matters more than anything is that child feels safe within those circles all of those circles from the inside to the outside they are what ensure that each individual child grows up 
with a sense of being safely seen and known and that they matter and mattering gets us to well-being, right? So I think that as we begin to understand the importance of that and, and move the work forward, we're having to break two trends, the past and our current misunderstanding of what it means to humanize a child. What it means to humanize a child does not mean they go to Harvard or they do first grade when they're four, they read when they're two, or, you know, um, they, you know, play on X sports team or any of that, or that, you know, we run around complimenting them because, oh, look at you, you're developing so quickly. It doesn't mean turning children into little adults. So we have two trends that we have to break, both of which have misinterpreted what it means to be a child by forcing adulthood on children, historically child labor, um, you know, seen and not heard, be a worker for the family, swallow the stress of the family, uh, don't speak up, don't have needs, you know, make sure you care more about your parents than you do for yourself or have, you know, tend to their needs more than your own. That we've adultized the child, but we also adultize the child in modern society in a very different way, as if we're doing it better by trying to make little people who just need nurturing and love be on some sped up time, uh, you know, cycle to be better little adults at 12 than most of us were at 22. So either way, we've missed them in the middle where they are. And that's where I think the work is going forward. It's kind of like we have to, and it's something I write about a lot in the book that's coming out in September, is just we have to come back to this very beginning with this child and build, rebuild all these groups that encircle them. And of course, that's gonna get us into intergenerational trauma and, um, and all kinds of things, right? Yeah, intergenerational trauma and historical trauma are really um, at the center of kind of the, the crisis that we have ourselves in now, a mental health crisis for children. And, it really is um, damaging our our children's um, mental health currently, and and definitely, which in result is damaging us as a society. So um, the mental health crisis that we have now is um, becoming more evident in our children, um, and it has been accelerated by um, social media and um, technology. Uh, and we're going full speed ahead into it, even though we have very clear science that says that these, um, that definitely media, social media and um, technology are, are harmful, especially the younger children are. Um, and then there's so many other things that play with the intergenerational and historical piece. And one thing that made, that came up while you were talking earlier is I used to uh, I used to be a crisis counselor for um, for families, and um, and it was something about something that I had kind of a, a very clear understanding like oh this is 
you know, there's some resentment about children who have needs or who are expressive that their um, that intergenerational trauma really shows up then because the parents really have this kind of, you know, they how, you know, like there's a some kind of audacity when children are, are reaching out and saying, I need this or I need that or I need love or expressing themselves. And that really uh, illuminates to the parent how they didn't have that when they were younger. And it, and, and that that intergenerational piece is very, well, it was interesting to me <laughs> at the time. Interesting is sort of morbid, but it is, um, it, it kept showing up in my work and like parents get really upset about the dynamics uh, around respect and, and things of this nature. Um, especially uh, parents of color, especially uh, descendants of slaves, this respect dynamic that uh, makes it harder for children to express themselves. Um, this has also showed up in um, families that I work with that were extremely religious. Uh, and so what are your thoughts on that? Why do adults become so upset when they see their children showing what I call like this audacity to, to be loved and cared for and, and to speak out for themselves. Well, there's a famous saying, um, and I think it's anonymous. I wish I knew who said it, but um, if no one ever taught you how to love, what it felt like to be loved, how do you teach somebody else, right? So like if, if you never had the experience of being loved and valued, how do you, how do you teach that for someone else? and make them grow up with that feeling that you never had. And you're, you're a psychologist and you know better than I do that when a parent is having a big reaction, like it, what, you know, I call in my work and the narrative writing program that I, that I run, you know, we call them big, sticky, red, hot, uh, big, sticky, red, hot feelings, right? Like, you know, they're, they're just bigger than they should be. Um, when parents are having those over something small, and look, I'm a parent of two, as, as you are in Matthew's parent, we're very imperfect as parents. And when we have those big sticky feelings around something that's happening that's small, it's, it's a very strong indicator that it's speaking to something intergenerational. That's, a, that's like, boom, you know right there that that is an intergenerational moment. Um, and so I, I think that the work around childhood trauma and adversity is helping to break open that understanding for parents. But again, I think we really are failing society and failing families because we don't really break it down how to do that, how to enter that process. We have a lot of resources and strategies, but we don't really bring people back to the beginning in a gentle, caring, calm way for the child they once were who is reacting with these big sticky feelings to moments with their child. Because when you really talk to parents, they don't actually want to be doing that. They don't actually like themselves when they do that. That is there. I, I actually have never heard a parent say, um, you know, I really love that about myself. Once they have a frame for trauma, right. And how trauma affects us. Um, so I think that that's a big part of it is bringing in that understanding of how one's own story, one's own narrative has created these 
missing parts. And to know that these missing parts are going to be those moments where you are going to overreact because you didn't get the respect you want. Your child didn't didn't follow the rule. Um, You know, in my family growing up, lying was like, oh, it didn't, you know, if you just that was just and, and I respect that and I respected my parents for that. But it was definitely a red hot, sticky thing for me so that. Um, one of my children, I shall not say which one, when they didn't tell the absolute truth about something, I thought this is like the end. You know, I can't believe I raised a child who wouldn't tell me. And this child was pretty young at the time. And I talked to the pediatrician and she was like, children lie all the time. They lie all the time. Children this age lie all the time. And I was like, how did I miss that memo? It was a sticky, sticky, sticky thing for me. And it's sh- and once we get that, oh, I've got some intergenerational trauma going on here. What is it? And we return to that child in ourselves and ask ourselves, how was this for me? Then we're beginning to do the work. And then we're beginning to learn how to make a repair. You know, Edtronic's work is so brilliant. You make a mistake, you need to make a repair. It's really hard to make a repair if you never got to be a child yourself. And so we have to bring people back to that work to see themselves in their own story. Yeah, I've I've definitely noticed that being a parent does activate your your inner child. Um, this conversation is, has been um, great. I really really like this conversation around beliefs and values because people often um, because our beliefs and values are often at odds with reality. People forget that um, kind of the unspoken beliefs and values and how powerful they are. So again, like you said, America loves its children, but history shows us that that has not been the case historically and may not be the case presently, and that there is a very clear thread around the exploitation of children, around the silencing of children, and definitely um, how that uh, intersects with issues of race and gender is very evident in our society. Um, and I always like to say that, you know, children are people too. That's, you know, it's when I worked with parents directly, that was one of the things I said all the time that you have to see them as their older selves. And you also have to see yourself as a child. So I think this conversation has been very fruitful. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll talk more about um, your upcoming book and anything that you can tell us about that. And then also get into um, how we really need to think about um, our own beliefs and values and how do we even change our beliefs and values. So we'll see you right after. Thanks. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma 
Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back. Thanks for joining us. Um, Today's guest is Donna Jackson Nakazawa, again, a science journalist, international speaker, and acclaimed author. Um, We spent the first half talking about, again, this uh, systematic view of America and how we um, have created conditions that make it more likely for our children to experience neglect and and abuse. And this episode, we're really focusing on beliefs and values and also some generational issues and the kind of the time that's the times that we're living in. Um, I'm, we're, we're still joined here by Matthew Portel. And so we're going to jump into our, our second half and really, um, talk about first, um, Donna's upcoming book and, um, and also, you know, what are our beliefs and values around children continue that conversation, but then think through what does it even really mean to change our beliefs and values and can they be changed? Um, Matthew, what do you think about, can we change our beliefs and values? You know, that that was what was the previous, uh, before the break, I, that's what I was processing. We had a lot of great discussion and I was resonating with a ton with being a parent, right? And and I think, I, I remember my parents saying, just wait till your child does this to you, right? And that lived experience. And that's that passing of that intergenerational experience of, this makes me mad. It's going to make you mad too, right? But then I, I started stepping back and going, 
okay, so we, we talked about that family unit. And the more that I look at the bigger picture, we can do that for the family unit. But there's been phrases like, I'm preparing my child for the real world that I've heard a lot of parents say. So that speaks to the system and the core beliefs of who we are as a country and how we view kids. So um, that that's what was brewing in my mind. I would love to get to that, but I also uh, would love to hear from Donna a little bit more about this upcoming book and what you can tell us about it, because uh, you there's a lot in the title in itself that kind of pulls you in, um, especially for those families who are raising daughters. Uh, so tell us what you can about uh, about your book. Well, I think it fits in neatly here because the book really takes a strong look. Um, it's called Girls on the Brink, you know, so that kind of gives you um, an idea. And Ingrid really talked um, a little bit in depth about the men growing mental health crisis that we're having in our youth. Um, it's been going on for a while while now uh, before the pandemic. Obviously, you know, it takes me two to three years to write a book. So I started this book before we even knew about the pandemic. In fact, I was on book tour for another book when the world shut down and I came home and and really dug in. Um, but even before that, we had very concerning evidence that our youth are really suffering from escalating, burgeoning, skyrocketing, all of those adjectives levels of mental health disorders in a way that they haven't before and that girls are struggling more than boys. Um, this is not to say that boys aren't struggling. Boys are struggling, um, but there are um, differences between the way that these struggles manifest and um, it would be a disservice to our children if we didn't look at that. And so as a journalist, when you see that many studies coming out showing um, you know, by age 17, a 2019 study, by age 17, one in three girls were reporting a period of major depression in the previous year, marked by worthlessness, guilt, and loss of loss of interest in activities, um, shame, uh, fatigue. And this was, you know, when researchers look at this, there are two ways of doing it, right? So one is to look at diagnosis, but diagnosis isn't always the best way to look at mental health. You need to go in and you need to do real in family interviews and find out like, what have the disruptions been? Is this kid still going to school? Like, um, at, uh, how has this affected them? Are they in counseling? So when you look at those lifestyle disruptors for child well-being, the numbers are staggering. And this was before the pandemic. The pandemic has poured gasoline on an already existing fire. So we weren't doing anything about it before the pan pandemic. We were doing a lot of head scratching and going, oh, what's going on here? You know, before the pandemic, 32 pediatric hospitals reported that the number of kids, especially girls, coming into the ER saying they didn't want to be alive was so much higher than in the past. It rose over a decade, 72%. And one researcher, one pediatrician I talked to said, we used to have kids in here with pneumonia and appendicitis, and now our halls are fulfilled with kids who don't want to live. So this has been going on for a while. Um, and 
Then during the pandemic, those rates rose another 25% and in girls, much higher than boys. So what I wanted to look at um, was also compounded by some emerging trends in neuroscience. And so I think this blows people's minds when I tell them this, but um, you might think that we've been looking at sex differences and how stress and trauma and adversity affect the developing brain for a long time. Wouldn't you assume that? Well, it turns out that all the models have been male models in preclinical and translational research. It was only in 2016. And when I say that, remember, it takes five years from a researcher putting out a grant and getting funding and doing the studies and then replicating them for a year and then writing a paper and then getting it in a journal. So in 2016, the NIH asked that neuroscientists use sex-specific models in the study of stress in the brain. Now, that is PTSD, anxiety, depression, trauma, adversity, chronic stress, and how stress also in the brain intersects with the immune system. 2016, they asked, and until before then, researchers did what researchers do. They use male models, because that was the norm in preclinical research, because they wanted to keep those pesky hormones out of it. Well, what happens to kids during puberty, during development and puberty is very different. Girls, as they come into pre-puberty and puberty, which is happening earlier and earlier, um, estrogen comes on board. It's just this great, fantastic thing, right? Estrogen, we think of as a sex hormone, but it's also, it's the body's regulatory hormone. It's making sure your neurons hum together and your brain and your body integrate as you go through development. And that in your brain, different parts of your brain wire up together in the right way. But estrogen is also a stress dependent hormone where um, in normal circumstances, it's keeping everything humming along beautifully. But when there is an abundance of stress, and we know this now because we finally have female models, estrogen amps up the brain immune response, which pumps up more inflammation, more cytokines, more antibodies. And this is why women have a more robust response to vaccines. Why would nature do this? Why would nature bring in a sex hormone that's going to make your response to stress more? Um, and let me be clear, it's hard for me to spell this all out uh, easily because there are lots of ways in which I could misspeak and people would get the idea that in some way girls are more vulnerable than boys. And that is not the case. This is only in the face of unrelenting toxic stress in which we see this reaction. So I want to be very clear here. Let me state it very clearly. Girls are not more vulnerable than boys in the face of stress. They're not less resilient. Actually, estrogen can help make the brain more resilient. Uh, girls can be more resilient in the face of complex stressors coming at them. But when that stress is unrelenting, toxic, and it never ends, the female immune response is more robust than the male immune response in the face of stress. Why would that be? Why would we evolve that way? 
I could go on all day about it, but I'll put it in a nutshell. Across evolutionary time, we, we came to associate stress and social stress in our environment with physical harm. Why would that be? Well, back when we were hunter-gatherers, if you were set at the outside of your tribe or all the way outside, you weren't going to have nourishment. You weren't going to get the good food from uh, the communal fire. You weren't going to get the tubers and berries. And guess what? Your body as an organism really cares about passing on your gene pool. Neither would your children. If you are put all the way outside the tribe, you're going to be the first person to be attacked by a marauding tribe or the first person to meet the saber-toothed tiger or whatever. Your immune system evolved over time. So that stress, social stress, that first sign of being ostracized left out, and of course we can talk about social media, indicates to your immune system to get ready for physical harm because that was true for most of our existence. Now, you have girls coming into puberty earlier than ever before, before the brain is ready to remodel, and estrogen helps the whole brain to remodel based on your entire history of stressors that you have experienced from the womb onward. They all get factored into the brain like intel, and they tell the brain what kind of scary world it's going into. So when we have girls growing up with a lot of stressors as they have now, and they've imploded with social media, the brain is getting the message that it's dangerous out there. And that is amping up the brain immune response, which enhances and brings forward more inflammation. And we said at the start of the show that excessive ramped up stress hormones, switch on genes for mental health disorders. So hopefully that wasn't too confusing. I want to say that I write about it better than I talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that this is, um, you know, obviously it's information that the public needs to know. Um, and I, I definitely appreciate you clarifying that <laughs> this does not mean that um, girls and women are more vulnerable um, but it is an indication of several things. So this the secular trend, which is this, um, you know, uh, puberty, the onset of puberty being younger and younger, just to give some context, you know, a hundred years ago, it was 17 and now it's 12. And on the average, or maybe onset, earlier, um, the APA is thinking of moving it to 10 because so many girls. So, I mean, it's a huge difference. And so when we think about, our evolution as a species over time, a jump like that in a hundred years is extreme. And so it's obviously an indication of environmental factors as opposed to our physical makeup. And so what are those environmental factors? And, and they, are, they are due to the environments that we've created as, as a society. Um, and that is a reflection of what we've been talking about is that we are, we are creating environments that make our children more susceptible to stress, neglect, abuse, and those environments are fueled by adults and adult decisions. And they're definitely fueled by you know, adult desires. So um, exploitation of girls um, when it comes to um, 
our understanding or our, you know, what we believe is beautiful or what we believe is attractive, um, the pressures that girls experience to to meet those societal standards around attractiveness and um, and beauty, um, definitely ex- sexual exploitation and um, and rape culture. Um, this yeah. is all fueling, um, and it's definitely reflected in our social media. And so, um, you know, these are systems. It's a systematic issue that's impacting our children and has been wildly unregulated, uh, even though we know impact. So I think that really is a testament to kind of what Bronfenbrenner was was saying, that all of these different um, systems, not just parenting, um, not just the school you go to, the neighborhood you live in, but all of these different systems are impacting a child's development. And I do think that we often overlook the development of of girls specifically, um, because especially in science, we we have this history of the male model in in science, um, in all aspects of science, education, medicine, uh, and so it's very clear that we have kind of. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was talking in, in earlier episodes around scientific colonialism, uh, our our belief in uh, patriarchal systems, our belief in white supremacy has kind of infiltrated our our ability to do research and what we how we interpret science, uh, and so um, thus making our methods you know obviously uh, skewed in in this way. And so that's also something that's a, that's a whole other episode right there. Um, but sure. um, but we have to be aware of how these environments are, you know, what's the real impact on children? And when we get down to the fact that it's creating more inflammation in their bodies, then we can connect it to kind of beyond mental health, um, the issue that we're having with childhood obesity, Absolutely. the issue that we're having with the secular trend, the issue that we're having with um, childhood diabetes, um, these other chronic um, stress-related diseases in children to include the mental health crisis is also there. I just want to throw in very quickly um, one thing I left out in this explanation, which I think is really important for listeners, um, is that the reason that this intersection, this axis between stress, puberty and estrogen is so potent is because estrogen makes this robust immune response for a really good reason, because females we carry children, our bodies have to be able to, and you know, you just had twins, your body, our bodies, when we develop, have to be able to do everything a male body can do. But we have a smaller heart, smaller lungs, smaller organs, we're generally speaking, smaller physically. And yet we have to be awake 16 hours a day and, you know, do everything that, that a male body has to do and carry a child. And that robust female estrogen-based immune response, the reason it's more robust in females across development is because we have to do so much with what we have. And estrogen is the reason we can do that. But when we have puberty coming in earlier, and if we think about the fact that every bit of intel that a child gets about how stressful is this world, am I safe in this world or not safe, is being factored in to how the brain will be remodeled as stress hormones come in. 
And you think about the world that we adults have created for children and this experiment going on with social media in which girls, you know, we just keep going forward with it as if there's no problem as they, you know, have Apple watches at the age of seven with Instagram on them. And by 11 are scrolling and despairing on on TikTok. You know, we're seeing social media related disorders in hospitals with girls turning up with all kinds of you know issues related to social media. And why would it be that toxic? Well, suddenly we've taken that social stressor that I broke down earlier and that fear of being liked, disliked, ostracized, included, belittled, commented on, not good enough. Um, and we've suddenly made it 24-7, right? While giving thousands and thousands of images to girls, which sexualize them from a very early age so that we're not even allowing them to have normal childhoods and development. Values. And, and then not only is that happening, I, I just, and I cannot think of the actress's name, um, but she's on Stranger Things, and she came out and spoke against what it was like to turn 18 and how she had to eliminate her social media because she was so sexualized. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the depth of, and I love that you focused on social media because it is such a major player in the impact of trauma on kids, mental health on kids, self-worth on kids, all of these pieces are playing. As a dad of 11 year old, my child knows don't even ask for social media because it's not going to happen for a long time. Um, but as a user of social media, an adult with a fully developed brain, I can tell you there are times where I get that dopamine kick of like, oh, somebody liked that or wow, this person retweet, retweeted it, right? So it does have that impact. So how do you see this moving forward? Because I believe there is hope, right? And there yeah. is solutions. Yeah. And, I, and I, talking to you earlier, the good news of this book is you do have some, and, and I know you can't necessarily dig into it, but you do have some, hey, here's some things we can do, and here's some hope. So what you can, tell us about the hope in all of the travesty that we have spoken about. Well, um, I, I, I definitely, I, you know, I am the mother of a beautiful daughter, and I can tell you this, I wish I had written this book 10 years ago. She's in her, just hit her early twenties. And um, I just, you know, in many ways, I, I think that between every line, this book is sort of an apology to my daughter for what I didn't know, if I can say that. And hopefully she won't listen and kill me later, but, um, <laughs> but, but there is so much hope if we, if we begin again back to sort of the first half of our conversation um, and go back to what we talked about in the first half with that sense of rebuilding. And when I say the beginning, I don't mean go back to the beginning of your child's life because look, you know, we start where we are, right? And, and one of the beautiful things about neurobiology is that we are always changing with our environment. And what is the biggest part of a child's environment is that primary caregiver or primary parent. And so we go back to the beginning and really look at the science 
and and go deep into how we help children to develop that sense of mattering because over time the that is so protective, but we have to build out from there. How do we help them to be safe in that extended family and in that circle of community? And it turns out that ACE's research in a way, you know, as powerful as it's been, it's kind of overshadowed some of the powerful research going on in public health about how we actually do build this sense of mattering and being seen and known and, and create a beautiful and powerful and gorgeous dance between a child and their brain and their nervous system and the environment they're in. It turns out we know a lot about that, right? And, and, and turning that into, I think I said earlier, in translating the science to impact so that it's actionable in small steps, in, in family life, starting wherever you are, and then building out into these circles that kind of encapsulate that child, that girl, kind of like Russian tea dolls, right? Those Mariushka dolls. It turns out we really know a lot about how to do that, but we have to deliver it in a way that parents can pick it up, schools can pick it up, communities can pick it up and, and, and build it out from there. But it requires go- making sure that girls feel safe enough on this planet that they want to be alive on it. Because right now, a lot of them, it isn't so much that girls are telling us they want to die. It's they're, they're telling us they don't want to live on the planet we made for them, that we adults have made for them. They don't want to be on it. And, and social media is a part of that. You know, we've just gone on with this great capitalistic experiment and billionaires are getting richer and girls are getting sicker. And, and, and it's, and we're not really paying attention because as Ingrid keeps saying, We've been it's we've been raised to do this, to just go with the system, whatever it is. OK, well, all the other kids have phones. You get your phone. Um, and I'm, I'm no stranger to these mistakes. Let me just say I'm not sitting here in a glass house. You know, um, I, I definitely have made my mistakes as a parent. So to me, the beauty of this work is not just stating the problem, which is horrific. Our kids are so unhappy. They've got climate change. My son, I think I mentioned before we started, he's he's out in California in school. And just a week ago, Thursday, I'm on a Zoom. He texts nine times. I go, sorry, guys, I got it. I don't, this doesn't normally happen. There was a shooter on Berkeley's campus. He teaches there, you know. Um, his girlfriend was in lockdown. He, it, it just, this is the world we've given them. Social media, gun violence, school shootings, climate change, the political hate, the discord, all of it getting ginned up and ramped up by algorithms on social media. And we have to go back to the very beginning and rebuild our understanding of safety and development and interrelationships in very small and consistent ways so that we build out these Marioshka dolls so that each girl feels safe in the center. 
and that changes the brain and that changes the immune system and that changes their future. That's the perfect closing. Thank you so much for for coming on today and uh, speaking to our audience. And this is History, Culture, Trauma. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.